We have a wonderful show today. I'm so excited to share with you that we are going to be learning from a man who has spent 23 years in the military. He's been a medic for the majority of those years. He has life experience on the battlefield and what it means to build an A-team and to help conquer anything. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means for us to build our A-team ourselves through the life lessons that our guest has had himself. Can't wait for you to listen to this episode. Hi, my name is Evan Herman, and I'm documenting my journey on becoming the best version of myself while learning how to be an entrepreneur and developing the successful habits that are necessary to get and keep me there. If you want to come alongside of me and make this journey together, we'll be listening and learning from some of the world's greatest mentors in the areas that matter most, faith, family, finances, friendship, fitness, and fun. So join me on the Whole Person Podcast. And today we have an amazing guest on our show, a man among men, a gift to humanity and his fellow brothers in arms, Greg Stuby. Greg, how are you? Doing great, Evan. Thank you. Good. Now, Greg, I actually have a lot more here on your bio that I was going to read because there's other things that I want to talk to outside of your military career. So just so everyone has a reference of who you are, but you enlisted in the army in 1988 as an infantryman. And then it was in 1992, you became a special forces sergeant for the Green Berets. Is that correct? Correct. Awesome. And you had training in surgery, anesthesia, trauma management, pharmacology. Did I say that right? Yeah, I was a medic. <laughs> you, were, you were an amazing medic. And then let's see here. It says that these skills were used to help your A-team, your team, to function where there was no doctor. While serving in combat, you were wounded, it says here, in Afghanistan during Operation Medusa. Is that correct? Yes. I could read all this, but I don't. Let's hear it from, from you specifically. What happened while you were over there? Well, uh, we entered into Operation Medusa. Uh, it was a Canadian-led operation, and, and they utilized three of our special forces A-teams uh, to go in and flush out the bad guys, and they formed a big horseshoe-shaped blocking force. And so any of the Taliban that fled from us would get squashed by the Canadians. Awesome. And I thought Canadians were just nice and like never went to war or anything. So they have yeah. boots on ground. Yeah, and I was, we were all very pleased to see uh, that the Canadian command and, and the units involved were, were aggressive because there had been a lot of violence there in the previous oh. months. And when they took over for that sector uh, of the theater, uh, they were serious about gaining control and we were happy to support it. Wow. So while you were over there, Greg, um, and hopefully I don't bring back up past trauma or anything, you were injured in this process. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, on the fifth day of fighting, uh, we had already run out of ammunition a couple of times because we were surrounded by over a thousand Taliban and there was only 30 of us. Uh, Holy cow. So, so it was fighting for days and fearful times. Uh, we each had to call on whatever we had going for us uh, to stay the course and fight the good fight. But on the fifth day, long story short, I was moving a weapons truck to a better position to support some dismounted guys on the other side of a hill that we had to take in order to gain control of that valley. 
and I didn't make it to the top. Uh, an IED blew up the vehicle that I was uh, on top of in the 50 cal turret, and it changed everything. Hmm. It says here that you've had 17 surgeries and spent 18 months in the hospital. Yeah, those are rough numbers. I think surgical procedures, I guess if people are thinking of major surgery for each one, probably not. But it was an extensive stay and and a whole lot of uh, uncomfortable things done in order to to restore me to to where I'm at now. And you, from what, what you've made a full recovery, is that correct? Yeah, as far as I can recover. Man, well, that you you are a miracle, as this says. And I got to be honest, like as we were talking earlier this week, when when I read over your bio and how many surgeries you had, it it made my current knee injury just be like, yeah, I should, I I got nothing here. <laughs> Everything's a matter of perspective right now. And when I read your bio, I was like, yeah, I'm a wuss. <laughs> well, every, everything is everything, and uh, pain hurts. It's just right. a fact. It's a human thing. It's not a military thing. And and so I would just say that if a hangnail is the worst pain you ever felt, then it really sucks. Yeah, true. Well, man, I brought you on today because you wrote a book called Conquering Anything, A Green Beret's Guide to Building Your A-Team. And I came across your book on Amazon where, you know, our listeners can can go purchase the book. Man, what what does an A-Team look like? And how how do you build one? Because the whole point is that Jim Rohn's quote says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And you're very specific about what team you want to go into battle with. So, so tell us, how, how does a person build an A-team? Well, I like the comment that, that you're basically uh, a product of, of the average of the five people you live with and work with. Uh, I agree that we become a product of our environment. Uh, and in many cases, I heard it said recently, I can't remember the author, but, but he said that good is the enemy of great. And if good is the standard by which you operate, then there's no need to be great. You may never shoot for it. You may never try. Uh, but in the special forces, optimally, we needed people uh, that could be great in any situation, in any condition, in any environment. And that begins not in battle, but at the onset of choosing a team and developing the team and training, not for the best case scenario, but for the worst case scenario. So like in the book, Good to Great, what you're referencing, you know, they use this analogy of having the right people in the right seat on the bus. So sometimes you might have the right people, but in the wrong seat, and then also just getting rid of the wrong people. How, how do you go about as an entrepreneur or a person in business from your military experience, how do you assemble a team that is strong enough to support you when when literally all hell breaks loose? Well, the first thing is assessment and selection. And and often who we don't select to be on our team is more important or at least as important as who we do. And and that's it's a hard thing sometimes to discriminate between one person versus another or to competitively rule one out and pick another one. But I guess when I wrote the book, uh, I was thinking of building your own A-team in life. And and your A-team might have a kitty cat on it, might have a baby in a stroller. You know, awesome. your, a, your A-team could be a, a softball team on the weekend. But at the end of the day, if you want to succeed, then it's important to build the right team. Example, if, if your brother-in-law wants to be on the softball team, 
but you know, he just, he doesn't have it. He's never applied himself. He's not serious about performing and he's not serious about being on time for practice either. And you know that at that point as a leader on the team, will you have the candor to tell him that he's not the right one and this is not the right team? Will you face the music with your wife to tell her that, that her brother can't play in order to be loyal to the team and, and to the success that everyone's working for? So those hard decisions require a kind of candor that, that can be hard to produce. What are the skills that I would need to acquire to, to really have that candor and in conversation with the people that might have to to remove from from my life would you just say you know i'm sorry i can't spend more time with you cuz you know when i look at my life uh, there's people that i'm like yeah they're not the best influence but there're also people that out of my love for them i'm not going to remove them from my life so how do i limit the people that are extremely close that i don't want their opinions or influences as much in my life it just depends on what your purpose is, what your direction is, what is your goal, um, and and what is the meaning behind what you're doing. If it's not important, then you don't have to be that cautious. But if it is, when you say that to me, I, I picture a, a ladder of things. It's not one thing, but it mm. begin it begins with belief and purpose. Uh, believing in what you do and, and having a purpose in what you're doing and why you're doing it. From there, to build the right team and, and to know when you've got to say no, it comes down to honesty. And for me, to build the right team that would be able to stay the course, to be resilient enough to still get it right when there's adversity, hardship, tragedy, all these things that happen to us in the human condition, in work and out of work. They distract us from our from our purpose, right? So we figure out how much we believe in something when we got to give stuff up to maintain that belief or tell right. a hard truth to somebody to maintain the direction. And for me, it comes down to honesty when it comes to a team, because in, in society, it seems we've misappropriated this word. It's been hijacked to a sexual reference, but we need intimacy. We need to, we really have got to be honest enough to be intimate enough to confess our limitations, to exploit those together as a team and develop them, allow iron to sharpen iron if we're going to be able to handle the challenges ahead. Right. You know, it's so cool that, that you're saying it requires honesty and intimacy. And the word intimacy, like you said, it's, it's been over-sexualized in our culture. The picture that came to my mind with honesty and intimacy in terms of relationship outside of a marital relationship is my best friend. He is He's closer to me than a biological brother, my friend Todd. And him and I have been friends since about 2008. And man, I tell you, we have gone through some really hard stuff together. There are times where, where he's lived, his family has lived with my wife and I for, for a period of six months where, where they've borrowed, I shouldn't say borrow, we gave them money to help them. And then, you know, there's times in our life where he's given me thousands of dollars because we were in need at different points. And there's this just deep, rich relationship that him and I call it a covenant relationship, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there's, there's this idea in Old Testament where people will enter in a relationship, a covenant. It's, an, it's, a, 
it's a like a legal agreement of a relationship and for him and I that was something that we decided early on that regardless of what goes on in our life that is the type of relationship that that we're going to have and so man I thank you for sharing that because that just not only confirms my relationship with him obviously but for our audience who's looking at the relationships that they have in, in their life, if you can't be honest with the person and them honest back and you can't have intimacy with the person in, in a non-sexual way, you need to, you're right. You need to check the people that you're, that you're around. So thank you for that. That, that was so good, man. Well, otherwise, if, if we're not honest enough to be intimate with one another and, and what you were just describing to me about that friendship that does describe a mutual reliance, which is a cornerstone for any team to be effective. If there's no mutual reliance, then it's not really a team, is it? You hit the nail on the head. So, and, and I've just found that if we're walking around faking the funk every day, acting like we're tough and we don't need anybody, acting like we know everything, acting like we're good at everything, we're going to we're going to really fail ourselves and we're going to fail the team that's counting on us because if right. we don't work on what we're weak at, if all we do is, is show and display and illuminate what we're good at, then when something goes wrong, I mean, we know from history that, that adversities and tragedies, they don't illuminate our strengths. They exploit our weaknesses and they show where we've not prepared. And so if we're not good at something, we've got to be honest enough to tell somebody on the team we need help. You know, one of the things I realized about the honesty and and the connection and the intimacy is that without those things in a relationship, it's almost a fake relationship. And if you don't have those things in any relationship, you're really alone. It's very lonely when you don't have people that you can be intimate with and open and honest about the crap that you're going through. And not just in a complaining way, but like, I'm struggling with this. I'm addicted to this. Something that you can release your innermost hurts, your pains, and have someone there to help hold you up. And, you know, that that actually kind of leads me to my next question. In your book, Conquer Anything and a Green Beret's Guide to Building Your Team. My question is this, because the whole theme of the, the podcast for us is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. For someone who's in the journey of, of entrepreneurship, because you're in that journey as well, you're, you're a speaker, you're an author, how do you surround yourselves going from not, not so many people in your life who are where you want to be to acquiring those relationships with people who are where you want to be? How would you go about doing that or advice that you have for someone to do that? Well, one of the first things is in good character assessment. We have to ascertain what someone's motivations are. And we can have totally like motivations, but be different, absolutely different people. So uh, embracing absolute commonalities and pushing aside petty little perceived differences is the first step. Okay. And, and if we're building a team uh, with birds of a feather, we think we're safer and we think we're more effective if everybody on the team looks the same, talks the same, acts the same, came from the same place. Well, we're making a big mistake. Uh, that's only the right method if you meet a mechanic that only has one tool in his box. Right. Uh, in order to face... Uh, 
challenges and be dynamic as a team. We're going to have to be resilient. So, so we're going to have to have commonality and purpose, and we're going to have to have a wide variety of capability. Diversity should never be a government mandate. It should never be uh, anything mandatory. It should be what we do automatically because we need diverse skills to address the challenges ahead of us. Because what we don't know is so much greater than what we do. For someone that doesn't have a mentor or a relationship with someone that is where they want to be, what would be the first step in seeking out that relationship? The first thing is don't try to create something out of thin air. <laughs> there better be something there. And, and we may never have the mentor that we wish we had, but I can tell you that in my life, most of my mentorship happened 30 seconds at a time because I would see someone that I didn't even know. And I, I would witness them standing tall or doing something right. And I never got to know them. I never got to know where they came from. But what they, what I saw in them in that moment was enough to influence me. That's actually really, really good because it puts an emphasis on paying attention to those that are around you and learning from your situations and circumstances. Because you're right, you know, not, not everyone will will get blessed with a lifelong mentor. I know I haven't. Like you said, I've had people in and out of my life at different periods of time, but I haven't ever had that one lifelong mentor. And maybe maybe that's by design by by the Almighty. There's stuff in so many different people that we need to learn that just staying with one person, there won't be as much growth. I, I don't know. I guess it's just food for thought. So Yeah, mentorship comes wherever it comes. And sometimes it's a tidbit. Um, if you have a lifelong mentor, embrace them. <laughs> All right. For sure. Awesome. Well, here's the next question I have for you. In, in terms of your military background, many of us don't know what it's like to fight for our lives or for the people around us. What, what is it like facing almost certain death in combat and coming out alive because the people you're surrounded by? It's a complex thing, and, and I would say it has a lot to do with our own humanity, who we are as people. Uh, there, are, there are issues of mortality that we all have to face and deal with. The biggest helpership, I mean, we say leadership is so important all the time. But that's just not a peacetime word. Leadership in those life-threatening environments means that you're willing to follow someone. You're willing to do what they tell you, even if you can die doing it. So overcoming your fear of death to accomplish even small objectives that you may not even agree with and you may not even like the person telling you to, it comes back to the kind of leadership that requires us to choose a compass early on and follow it and be one person. Is it legal? Is it moral? Is it ethical? And it has to be those three things if we're going to advance because anyone that we tell to do something uh, anywhere down the road, it's not their own life that's going to flash before their eyes like in the movies. If you tell someone to do something that might kill them, they're going to look at you for everything they know about you. And so that's where the real leadership equation comes in. You've got to be right and you've got to be good enough that they trust you in any situation. Mm -hmm. So overcoming those uh, almost uh, and the fears that you feel when you know that death can be around the next corner or on your next step, you'll have a childlike moment in my experience. And, and you'll, you'll have a bargaining moment where you say, do we really have to do this? 
do these people really want to kill me or, or do I really have to shoot somebody? Those are horrible contemplations. And, it, right. and if that doesn't shake you to the core as a human being in an otherwise civilized world, nothing will. Uh, and to deal with that, I say that leadership and good team dynamics are the best way through it. There's nothing that a boss or a manager has asked me to do that risks my life. That being said, I feel like if we can take what you're saying in perspective with with our own reality, where we're at, it should be much easier for us to be a follower in the context, okay, well, at least even though I may not like this, I'm not having to risk my life for this because that's an entirely different game. And I like what you said. Is it moral? Is it legal? And what was the other ethical. one? Ethical. Ethical, did you say? Yeah, moral, legal, and ethical that, that we choose um, how we're going to follow based off of those three things. If it's not breaking the law, you know, then, then just buck up and do it. That being said, when, when you were injured, your A-team changed very quickly not by choice, but your A-team became the people that all of a sudden were keeping you alive. Talk to us a little bit about what it means to having to switch players quickly or p- people that you surround yourself with for immediate survival. Well, that's a – wow, you're not asking simple questions, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you asked me to go hard and Abs- deep, so absolutely. I'm, I'm doing that. So um, in building a new team, it was it required me to reinvent myself, uh, mm. necessarily reinvent, but figure out who I was in the first place, because I had several things wrong about my own perspective and my own identity, who I thought I was and how I appeared to be in my own mind was often very different than the way others saw me. And though I pictured mm. myself being the model of service, being in the uniform, toting a gun and facing bad guys overseas for our freedom and our security. uh, I really wasn't the best picture of service. And in order for me to begin choosing a better team, I had to recognize and respect all the service that I'd ever been given that I hadn't respected before. And that first happened when I was in the hospital and I lost half my intestines and I've got third degree burns on my backside. Well, you can imagine you lose control of your movements. And so, right. and so I had diarrhea and it, was, mm. and it was going into my burns, full thickness burns. And as painful as that was, those are supposed to be sterile dressings. What hurt worse was having people I didn't know come into the room and wipe me and clean me and redress me 10, 15 times a day. And it, and it humbled me and it forced me to recognize that, that service manifests itself in so many ways every day with so many people. And we don't give credit for that. So in order for me to start building a team, I had to learn how to be a team player in the real world with real people where freedom really exists. I was in this novel castle-like military environment where it was all about the battlefield, but that's not where service originates. And for me, mm-hmm. service begins with, with my relationship with God. So tell me more about that. Like why, that, that's very specific that, that you keyed in on that. And I'm curious to know 
why does it start there? Well, it has to start there. And, and, and I don't go around telling everybody that they need to believe exactly as I do. But I do encourage people everywhere to believe in something. Have faith in something bigger than you. <laughs> Have faith in something uh, and serve it. Serve above self and be willing to serve beyond sacrifice. And faith is one of the things that you're going to have to come back to at some point. When, when your life experiences take you to the threshold, to the limits of your comprehension and understanding in this world, whether it's pain, uh, near-death experiences is, is a really common uh, uh, example of this. But when you get there, you're going to have to reach for something else that you don't know yet, that you can't rely on. You've never been able to, well, everything you have in this world has been enough so far, but now it's not. What are you going to reach for? I've never met an atheist in a foxhole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So a foxhole, for anyone that, that doesn't know, that's the, the military trench, correct? Like when you're currently in battle under fire, Am, am I, am I understanding yes, it's, it's a luxury to not be under threat in your life. And, and the moment your life or your livelihood is under threat, then you start reaching for other things. And it's, it's very important to learn before that day comes to surrender to love, compassion, faith, service, surrender to them. And that's the one thing nobody taught me to do. As a boy, as a man, as a soldier, I was told to never surrender. But the truth is, when the real adversity came in my life, if I was going to survive it and make it through with a healthy life, then I had to surrender to several things. And it began with my faith, and it went to service, love, compassion, all the things I was weak on in my life. I hadn't developed them, and now I needed them all of a sudden. That's, that's some good food for thought. I don't want to beat a dead horse by kind of always going back to to your injury. I do have some, uh, a question just kind of around that. Was there a point through that process that you wanted to give up and die because of how badly you were hurting? No, I don't think there was a time that I wanted to give up or wanted it to end. When it got that extreme, I found myself turning to God <laughs> and, and I would I would beg him for survival. Uh, I would I would beg him for relief. Mm. And and every time it got that bad, I was concerned. I was very worried that I might die and not have a chance to get things right or better for my son, for people I cared about, for for my own legacy. What was it going to mean? And 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 would my son have to choke back thoughts of me? and hide them somehow in his own mind to say that I was a good man. I, I was really concerned about that. And, and I swore, God, please let me live. And I'll, I'll never do this again. I'll never do that again. And I'll always from now on, if you just spare me, right. I'll always do this, this, and this. But I still wake up a turd. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I wanted to ask you that, because you were in probably one of the most <sighs> physical painful states that a person could could be in because you 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 literally got hit by a bomb and blew up to just put it bluntly and and your desire was to continue to go what kind of strength came out of 
facing your own mortality? Because I hear different people that say, you know, every day I picture what it would be like to die or to lose your wife, your kids, your this, your that. And then it, it's so sobering to them and gives them, you know, a rejuvenation of purpose. What was it like for you facing your own mortality? Mm. Well, I think to explain that properly, I'd have to say that, that everything I'd prepared for was to be killed. <laughs> I never considered being badly wounded. Contemplating my own mortality as a combat soldier and particularly a Green Beret, that had to be something that was close. It had to be something that I dealt with actively in order to do that job well. I had to accept that risk. But what I didn't prepare for was being close to death and not only unable to help other people, but unable to help even myself. And and wow. so now I was no servant at all. Uh, now I was being served by other people I didn't even know in ways that I'd never served anybody. I always wanted to meet pretty nurses, but not like that. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and they were, they were exercising this love and compassion and this, this level of service and they call it a job, but it, but it's so much more than that. And it reminded me, you know, of our mothers and we're all born to a mother and, and she can be sick, tired, hungry, injured, and it doesn't matter. She's up through the night, wiping our butts. And right. the, yeah. the measure of our, of her success is simple. It's our success. And what if we incorporated some of that into our leadership where, where the members of our team are more important than we are? And I may not be completely answering uh, your question, uh, but it, for me, it's complex stuff, but it's, it's, it's everything I am going forward. And, and I got right. it wrong for so long that I just feel like I have so much making up to do. Right. Just to be a little vulnerable myself here, you know, I, I also hold to the, the Christian faith, such as yourself, from, from your conversation. And we lost a daughter in, sorry, May of 2000, and excuse me, March of 2013. And that was one of the most painful experiences of my entire adult life. And I had, you know, before my daughter passed away, over a period of 10 years, um, I lost one very close person in my life every year for 10 years, amounting finally to my daughter. And I'll, I'll share probably more about that story in another podcast. But when my daughter, sorry, when my daughter passed away, um, I remember we were in the hospital. She was a premature stillborn. And I was laying on the hospital bed. It was late at night and I wasn't bitter or angry at God because I knew he didn't cause it, but I had some very difficult questions for him. And you being in a situation of extreme pain and even grief, what were the tough questions that you asked or even made you question your faith? Well, at that time, um, I was questioning a lot. Number one, I had survivor's guilt, and, and I suppose I always will, because a lot of my friends never made it home. 
uh, I had guilt that maybe I had forgotten to duck somehow and left my team to fight in my absence, um, less capable to handle the situation they were in, uh, which might even be arrogant. I might not have been much a con- much of a contributor at all, actually. Um, yes, the guilty feeling that others were dying and, and that I didn't. Uh, so for me, <clears throat> big questions was why did he spare me? Why was I allowed to be with family and, and loved ones and enjoy the blessings of freedom when others weren't? That was a hard question. Uh, Another hard question for me, can't speak for anybody else, but when you take human life, whether it's a a bad guy, an enemy, no matter how justified it is or seems, even if you had to do it to save your own life, there's still a conversation to be had with my creator. Am I okay? Was this done in a way that that my soul is in jeopardy. And even though in that situation, it may have been justified militarily and otherwise, but I had made the decision in my life to go that way, knowing I would do that thing. So the the questions I had ran deep into who I was, what was I doing in the first place? And then the way it had played out, would I be okay eternally? And And no matter what we learn growing up, it's different when we face those kinds of actions and hard truths, and we have to contemplate them in a relationship with a spiritual being. Hmm. Wow. I have three questions that I I want to kind of end on um, with you answering. The the first one being, what is the biggest lie in self-talk that you had or you currently have and struggle with the biggest lie correct this the biggest self-talk lie um what i mean by that is the lie that you tell yourself or the lie that you believe about yourself your your internal conversation yeah i think i think the biggest lie is that i i never accepted <laughs> much less planned to not be a warfighter. I, I always thought of myself as the Green Beret. And the whole time I was doing it, mistake was believing this lie that I was great, that I was that I was the expert at what I was doing. Uh, and I didn't understand that we're all born into this world slobbering on ourselves. And if things go perfectly, We'll make it through the years and decades into this romantic sunset. We're just going to be slobbering on ourselves again. And so everything that we think makes us great during those middle and early years, it's already going away. So <clears throat> so that lie, set, it set my teammates up for failure through my whole career because I was not in the business putting myself out of business. I should have been more actively giving away everything I had, everything I knew, sharing everything, cross-training, mentoring, developing new guys coming in. Just like we do our children, we want them to be better than us. Well, a team should be no different if we right. care about the outcome and the, and the objective that we've sworn to uphold. So the big internal lie, if I'm understanding you correctly, that, that you've had yourself 
is that you were thinking that you were greater than what you really are. I'm great. I'm smart. I'm professional. And this will go on in perpetuity. That, that's a lie. Okay. Right. But here's the next one. You ready for this one? What brings you peace? Mm. Uh, it brings me peace to know that even though I try as hard as I can on most days to do well and to have things uh, unfold in an outcome that's desirable to me, uh, it brings me peace to know that it's not my plan and that even on a bad day when bad things happen, I have faith uh, that that God's plan for all of us, it, it pays off in the end and we can't always see it. And that, right. that brings me peace. And it brings me peace to know that he's created a great generation behind us, no matter how we try to judge them, because uh, these kids are different than we were. Okay. So here's the last question. What's the best decision you've ever made? The best decision I ever made was to adopt a code in my life to try to make sure things are ethical, moral, and legal before I do them and to serve something greater than myself. And this was not a decision point at one moment in time. It was an evolution, but that decision required a lot of experience and a lot of mistakes, failures, oversights, but coming to the decision that it's right to serve things that are greater than ourselves. I think that's the right decision. And, and I think I wound up doing that to my best ability. Awesome. Greg, thank you so much for your service to our country, to coming onto the show, and even for writing your book, Conquering Anything, A Green Beret's Guide to Building Your A-Team. Because it sounds like you have experienced so much in your life of what it means to, to be a follower, to be a leader, to surround yourself with a team that kept you alive in multiple areas, both after the fighting to the healing process. So Greg, thank you for, for your life experiences and skills and so grateful that you've made um, a miracle recovery, man. Thank you so much for your time. Any, anything that you want to say to our audience before we go? Well, I just believe that, uh, first of all, I'm not an expert in any of these things. Uh, this is the result of failures and oversights and, and mistakes for decades. But what I will say is that it, if I was truly serving something greater than myself uh, in the military or otherwise, then, then I owe the lessons learned from that service back to that which I was serving, being this country and the freedom we have. And, and so lessons learned from the battlefield, I think I owe to anyone that I can share them with. And, and to each one of us, I say, tag, you're it. Now, what are we doing with it individually to maintain it in a way that the next generation will agree that it's worth fighting for too? Right. Well, awesome. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. And um, I appreciate you coming thank on. You. Maybe we can have you in the future again. Thank you so much. Take care.